Scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is dead, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, along, although the body is dead because of the sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, are we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that seemed perfectly clear, right? (laughs) Sometimes when you read Paul, it sounds like the teacher in Charlie Brown. You know what I'm talking about? Wah, 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 wah. So I... I say that to begin because I want to talk today about Paul's theology. And as soon as I say Paul's theology, I have a tendency because of my history with the church and because of a very expensive seminary education to want to use really big words that are cool, that I like. And that means you have a temptation to fall asleep or to let your mind wander to the football games that will be happening later this afternoon. And so today I want to try to talk about Paul's thinking and theology, but I'm going to try to do it with no insider language. Okay, I'm going to try to use it using no jargon, no big words. Okay, so this could be the children's sermon. That's my goal. And, um, but the problem is I'm already off to a bad start. Okay, because I use the word theology. And when we say theology, that's a jargon word. So let me try to uh, just parse that out a little bit. Theology just means the study of God, but even that doesn't really say what it is. Uh, Theology is what happens when we start asking 
the big questions of life that people throughout all history and throughout all places have actually asked. Um, like, what is the meaning of life? Is there something beyond this life? How do we live a life that matters? What is wrong with this world? What's wrong with me that I can't do the things I want to do and I, and I do all the stuff I don't want to do? I mean, what's wrong with me? How do I understand the parts of life that seem outside my control? Particularly when they cause me to suffer and I can't quite see why I had anything to do with it. And if you think about it, these are the questions that we spend a whole lot of our lives talking about and thinking about. Even if we don't ask them directly, in the way we strive at work, in what we try to pursue with our families, in the back of our minds, these questions kind of roll all the time. This was true of ancient people too. Ancient people lived in a world where they were reliant on the land and they were reliant on the hunt. And, and you all have a grocery store, so you don't understand this the same way that they would have. Okay? But, but you were reliant on the community growing crops. You were reliant on going out for hunts. And, and you couldn't do it all. You couldn't get all the crops. So you were reliant on each other. Okay? If I had a vineyard, then you maybe grew grain and we could trade. But we were reliant on our crops all the time. You were reminded that you were reliant on your crops. But that meant you were also reliant on things outside of your control. Every day there would be this, this big hot ball that would go across the sky and you didn't quite know what it was, but you knew that if it beamed too hot, it would dry up all your plants and your animals would die in the heat. But at the same time, you knew that the, the plants grow, would grow towards that thing. Sometimes there would be these, these, this water that would fall from the heavens. But if it was too much, it would flood out all your crops and you'd have nothing. But it, and if it didn't come at all, well, then your crops would dry out and you'd have nothing. So up there somewhere where these, these beams of light or you know, this, these balls in the sky and this water that would come down, and you were reliant on that thing. And even the hunt. Okay, if Sometimes you would go out and you seem to catch an animal instantly, but sometimes you'd go on the hunt for days and get, get nothing. Sometimes you'd fish and you'd fish and you'd have no fish and sometimes it would very, be very easy. And so there were all these things outside of your control. And even certain things about what was going on inside of you. At night there'd be this thing, this ball that would go across, but it wasn't always like a ball. It sometimes it would get smaller and then it would get bigger and it would get smaller again and, and, and you would begin to notice, okay, something as a woman about what this thing does in the sky relates to my body. And so sometimes, depending on where that moon was, we might be able to have children, or we might not. And sometimes a child would live, and sometimes a child would not. And so what ancient people began to do is they began to define these things. That, that these seem to be uh, something outside of my control, but, but they seem to be controlled by something or someone else. And so over time, societies began to describe what was controlling the sun and the moon and the rains and and uh, what was controlling the crops, or how I could have children, or how my, my, uh, my sheep would do. And, and these became gods. They, they got names. And the goal became, i got to keep these, whatever these things are out there, I better keep them happy, right? Because I'm reliant on them for my crops. And if there was a drought, and the drought went on and on, well, maybe 
whoever is in charge of that rain not coming is mad because I did something or we did something as a community. And so you would start to pull back some of your crop and you would give it to those beings, those gods, just to make sure they knew that you were grateful. And since they were mainly up there, you would go up as high as you could to get to them, right? So you'd go up on the side of a mountain because if they're up there and I go up, I'm closer to them. And a lot of times you would burn your offering, your, your, your stuff that you were giving, whether it was a part of your flock or was a part of your grains, so that the smoke would rise up to them and they would know how grateful you are. But here's the problem. Those gods, those beings that are way out there, you never quite knew where you stood with them. What if you had a drought? What if you had floods? What if you couldn't get pregnant? Then you'd have all kinds of questions. Well, am I sacrificing to the right God? Maybe it's the wrong God. Maybe I'm sacrificing them the wrong way. Maybe I'm not doing enough. If not grain, you could sacrifice an animal. If the drought continues, maybe you would spill your own blood on the altar. If floods would not cease, maybe you would sacrifice your own child or a human from the community to appease those gods. But the gods always seemed angry. You never quite knew where you stood with the gods. And so there were systems of sacrifices and authorities called priests would started to form. And they'd say, okay, here's how you get right with this god. Here's how you get right with that god. And they were very local. So different societies had different names for these gods. Now early in the Bible... God seems to be portrayed through some of these ideas. Okay, so God seems to have, uh, most societies had some kind of storm God or God of lightning. When you hear God described in early in the Bible, you get that. You get lightning and you get thunder and you get pillars of fire and pillars of cloud. And so it seems like early on these people start to say that there's a God, but they, they don't quite get out of their whole system of thinking about all these different gods. Even the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt have no other gods. What? Before me. Which, which leaves the question, well, what about after you? Like, maybe there's one God, and it's the most important God, but the other gods, like, those are the lesser gods. Like, really, there's only one God that, that matters. And it seems like early Israel has some of these kind of ideas, but it doesn't stay there. God comes to this man named Abraham, then Abram, and thing begins, things begin to change. God calls Abraham to leave the house of his father and go to the land where I had chosen. Well, here's the problem with leaving your father's house. Your father had all kinds of gods. Your father had all kinds of idols. And where your father was from, you knew where the high places were. You knew where you would go to be closer to God to make sacrifices. You knew the names of the gods in this area. But to leave and go to some other place, well, that was strange. Furthermore, what God talks to the people what God actually comes and tries to have relationship with a person. This is foreign. You, you have to understand, when this happens to Abraham, nobody had ever conceived of a God that would actually speak like this. Okay? If there were stories like in the Greek world where the gods would come down, they were really weird stories. Okay? It wasn't to have a good relationship with humanity. But this God comes close, and this God wants relationship. And there's this great story when Abraham eventually gets into the land where God tells him to go up to a mountain called Mount Moriah and sacrifice his only son. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the very first time, you, you think, where are child protective services for this story? And, and this, these are the kind of stories where if you initially look at it, you think, this is why religion is so cruel and so bad. 
okay, because of moments like this. Like, it's okay to sacrifice your child. But, and, but it's interesting. Abraham doesn't question God. Because Abraham, in Abraham's world, gods would ask stuff like this of you. In fact, it's interesting. Abraham doesn't have to ask God how to sacrifice his son. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do. But apparently Abraham does. I wonder if Abraham had seen child sacrifice. I wonder if he had a cousin or a sibling who had gone through this. This was normal. Okay, this is the, the weird part of this story isn't that God would ask for a son. The weird part is what happens at the end where God stops Abraham and says, no, 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 no. There's a ram over there. Okay, gods don't interact like that. Hey, in, in those days, it's almost like God is trying to tell Abraham, that's not the kind of God I am. And I'm going to set you up for this to make sure you understand that that's not the kind of, I am not the kind of God that would ask for your child. I'm the kind of God that would provide a ram to go on behalf of your child. Gods didn't behave this way. This is radical in human history, this God that would get involved, that would answer, that would not demand. Generations later, one of Abraham's relatives named Moses would lead the people out of Egypt where they had been slaves. And for 40 years, they would wander around the wilderness and God would set up all these things that they were supposed to do to stay in right relationship with him. There'd be all kinds of laws and all kinds of sacrifices. And when we read them, they sound really, really weird. Okay, if you've ever read Leviticus, you're a saint, okay? Um, because it's, it's page after page of exactly how you're supposed to butcher uh, all these animals. And that, that sounds so archaic to us, except it was so far forward thinking for its day. Because it wasn't violent, first of all. It was humane. And second of all, this is a God who tells you exactly what you have to do to be right with him. Okay? With the other gods, you always were wondering, well, is God angry or not angry? Do I have peace with God or not? Did I do enough or not? But this God says, no, do this and you have peace. It was a huge, huge leap forward. These sacrifices were done in a temple. The temple is actually on a mountain, so you go high to get close to God. And interestingly enough, not in the Bible, but in Israel, Israel's tradition, the temple mount is Mount Moriah. Hey, the belief is that that is the mountain where Abraham goes and almost sacrifices Isaac. And so they believed they were going to that place. And so you went to a holy place where you could have God be close. This is radically new. Hey, you would go to those high places to, to, to answer to God, to, to offer to God. But there was never this place where God was actually trying to get close to you. And Abraham's family would have all these laws. All these expectations for how you were to live. That being with God and God being with you meant that you were supposed to look different, you were supposed to eat different, you were supposed to act different. You couldn't worship the other gods, you couldn't do their sacrifices, and you couldn't eat their meals. You had to be different because God called you to be different. The problem with this system, however, is that some of these larger questions are still not answered. Right? Even though I may have peace with God, guess what I'm going to have to do next year? I'm going to have to get another sheep because I'm probably going to do some bad things between now and then. Okay? In fact, in some ways, these laws and these sacrifices only highlight how broken people are. 
Like it's a, it's a constant reminder then that I still have to go and I still have to go. I still have to sacrifice. Still, I'm not following the laws the way I should. And all these sacrifices also have some big questions about God. Does God get angry that I have to keep sacrificing like this? What is this God that needs blood the way he seems to? And so some of these questions that, that Israel's faith, Israel's system starts to answer, it, it doesn't add up. It, it doesn't quite answer all the questions. And then when they get taken into exile and when the Romans are in charge in Paul's day, uh, there's more questions. Like if we're really doing all the things we're supposed to do and God is not mad at us, then why are the Romans in charge? Are we not doing it well enough? Are, is God angry at us? I mean, that's still the question. Is God still angry with us? Are our sacrifices not working? Is the temple somehow corrupt? In the exile, the prophets add another layer to this, and they make sure Israel understands that it's not just about following the law, it's about how you treat people. That, it, that being exclusive and treating others, the prophets would say, you, you, you can't follow the law if you don't love your neighbor. But still, in Paul's days, there's this crisis. And there's a lot of debate going on about how to answer some of these questions. And the system that Paul had inherited, it, it just isn't quite answering all those questions. So it's a little bit tedious, you understand? It's a little bit like on edge. So when these people start talking about Jesus, and they start, start being followers of the way... Paul does not recognize in their talk of Jesus anything that looks like the system that, he's been that he has inherited. Okay? His answers to all these life questions, his theology, this Jesus doesn't make any sense. Okay, a Jesus, God is human? God who died on a cross from the Romans? This doesn't add up to Paul at all. So he begins to persecute them because they're a threat to his beliefs. But when Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and he's walking along and he's blinded he suddenly begins to see things differently because he notices in that moment that Jesus is Lord he is somehow God he is somehow the answer to all these questions he's the next step so we've been talking about this development from being sort of uh, all these gods to being one God and Abraham and Moses is like this relationship and who God is keeps getting clearer and keeps getting closer, clearer and closer, clearer and closer. And then Paul sees Jesus for what he is. But Paul has to do a lot of work to figure that out because now it doesn't make any sense to him because he didn't recognize it at first. So how does it make sense? Paul goes to Arabia. Probably he goes to Mount Sinai, spends a number of years there and then back in Damascus working out what, what do I make sense of how this story that I've inherited, that I've just tried to spell out for you, is answered in Jesus? So now, let's look at a couple of these verses in Romans and, and, and see if you can see them differently with all this story in mind. Paul starts out, Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So Paul says, first of all, all those laws, all those rules, all those things, they kept you trapped. Because you always had to sacrifice. And you always knew how bad you were because you were reminded of it. Um, it's like, have you, ever, have you ever done this where something was wrong, but you didn't know about it? And then suddenly you find out? Okay? You didn't know there was dust in that corner 
until you move the couch, right? And then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I know. See, that's part of what the law does. It says, okay, there's dust in that corner. Okay, or that picture frame is not straight, and you all of a sudden have to know all the time that that's not straight or there's dust in that corner. But now the law is different because there's a new kind of law, a law that doesn't condemn. Because, because there's no now, there's, the sacrifice has been made. The thing you would do all the time to try to be right with God, all of a sudden Jesus does it. There's no more uh, condemning. Because there's two kinds of law. One was the law of sin and death, meaning showing how bad you were. One, Paul calls the spirit, the law of the spirit of life, which means the law that actually leads you to live a life that answers some of the questions we've been talking about. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, the problem with the laws is you couldn't do them. Okay? You couldn't do them. But then Jesus comes along, and he can do, the, he can do them. And not only can he do them, but he does them and takes the punishment, does what you're supposed to do because you can't do them. Okay? He, so he doesn't deserve what he's going to do on the cross, but he does it anyway. And now the system is totally upside down. The system that, that captured you is now a system that can free you because Jesus broke the system. He became flesh. And so this big gap, you remember how God was far away? The gods were always up there and separate from us, especially because we were so broken. And then God kept getting closer through Abraham, through Moses, except Every time God would get closer, we would realize how bad it was. That Even though God wants to get closer, we can't live up to our end of the bargain. But when Jesus comes and is both God and human, in him there's no, there's no gap. There's, nothing, there's no separation between, between God and humanity. And so all that, all that thing that had been happening, all that stuff that had been happening over 4,000 years as God is moving in and moving in and moving in to be close to humanity. Now, he's together. Now, it's fixed. And so you are different because of it. So all those sacrifices, all those lambs that were slain, were just, were just markers. They were just pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, which would be Jesus. And so now, God is not separate from us, not in some far-off place. This is the next step in this whole process that went Abraham to Moses to David. And, and now, now Paul, and this is troubling for Paul, it's not about whether you follow those laws or do those sacrifices. Now it's about what will you do with Jesus, who answered all of those things. Now, here's the big question that then Paul has to wrestle with. Well, what of those laws move forward and are important today, and what were just for a season to show us how sinful we were? Okay, and so there's certain laws that, that Paul would say, and the early church wrestles with and says, okay, um, laws of circumcision, laws of dress, laws of uh, um, uh, what you eat, is uh, those laws were to point toward and separate, keep us separate from the people around us. But now that we have Jesus, we don't have to do those laws anymore. So eat your bacon and ham as much as you want. 
Okay? But there's some of those laws that relate to, to how God expects us to live and how we treat other people that do move forward, right? Like killing is not back on the table. Okay? Adultery is not suddenly back okay. okay. Those things are still bad. And so there's work to be done to say, well, what are those laws are, are about pointing to Jesus and what are those laws are about um, how we need to live and to treat other people? Paul ends that little section. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the new system is not that you are uh, in fear. Okay, the question is not whether God is angry at you or not. It is clearly defined. God is not angry at you. God is not angry at you because it's been taken care of. But I wonder how much we still live like those ancient people. I wonder how much when, when life gets hard, when things get challenging, we still are like, we still live in this fear that God is somehow angry with us, that God is out to get us. But I want to tell you that I think the core of Paul's theology is that God is not angry with you, but that God loves you. Loves you so much that he spent several thousand years working out a plan to go from being distant from you to being right with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. And that there is so much joy and satisfaction and calm and suffering and energy when... You start to wrap your head around who Jesus is and what he's done. That our sacrifice to end all sacrifices has been met. That our temple or high place where God comes down to meet us isn't a temple anymore. But what does Paul start to say? You are the temple. God isn't present somewhere else. He's present in you and in your life. That life at its best is found when you take those big life questions and start to answer them with Jesus at the center. Or maybe to quote the great theologian Karl Barth, I think I've used this quote before, that when asked to summarize his theology, and he had written about his theology, it was like 20 books. But when he was asked to summarize, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so I tried to do this without jargon, but I, I, I think that that, if I had to summarize it, is Paul's theology he's thinking that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that as simple as that is, it begins to answer all these larger life questions. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the chance to uh, sort of debrief and interpret some of what Paul's thinking was. Uh, help us in our faith to not buy into all the, the big words, the churchy things we say, the jargon, but to actually learn to speak of your work in our lives in our own language. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and join together in saying, Amen.